When the coronavirus invades your body, it can take over, make you really sick. High fever, hacking cough, shortness of breath, chest pains, chills, headaches, swollen joints, and blood clots. It can even wipe out your senses of taste and smell. But here's the weird thing. You can also have it and feel perfectly fine. Still, as the rising number of deaths in the U.S. prove, COVID-19 is lethal. It's a threat to us all, to our health, our economy, to all the things that make life worth living. It's both a cliche and a truth. Nothing has been the same since the coronavirus invaded our lives. A handful of cases diagnosed in March signaled its arrival in Kansas. And Dr. Lee Norman, the head of the state's health agency, knew immediately that was just the beginning. And it wouldn't blow me out of the water if we were at 300 to 400 at the end of the month. But no one really knew what was coming, so we, all of us, including Governor Laura Kelly, prepared for what we thought might be the worst. Our hospitals have thrown a huge effort into preparing their facilities for the inevitable surge of COVID-19 patients. But we're simply not ready for what we anticipate will be the peak of this pandemic. It's clear that we had a peak of some sort before stay-at-home orders and the closure of schools, businesses, and churches brought the numbers down. But when the lockdown ended and summer arrived, the numbers spiked again. Will they continue? Will it get less fatal? Who knows? We're in a season of uncertainty. I'm Jim McLean, and this is My Fellow Kansans, a podcast from the Kansas News Service. The term essential worker covers a wide range of jobs. Jobs that proved especially vital when Kansans were stuck at home, hiding out from the coronavirus. Anil Garmalker has one of those jobs. He's a truck driver. When the pandemic hit, he crisscrossed the Midwest with trailer loads of food. So there would be meat on the shelves when we ventured out to the grocery store. He kept us fed until he couldn't anymore, because the coronavirus invaded his body. In this third episode of Season 3 of My Fellow Kansans, we listen as Anil, his wife, and his mother describe what it was like, the fear, sometimes panic, and finally the joy of making it through. They shared their story with Kansas News Service reporter Celia Yopis Jepson. Anil Garmulker pulls a semi into the gravel driveway outside his house. It's a 2016 Freightliner Cascadia. We're in Oswego, rural southeast Kansas, not far from the Oklahoma border. Usually with a refrigerated trailer, we can pull about 44,000 pounds of meat. In April, while so many of us were hunkering down, Anil was making deliveries. Yeah, we were taking uh, turkey products. And that's probably how he caught COVID-19. Arkansas and Louisiana. He doesn't really know. I think I may have even been in Tennessee. Anil is 41, and though it's been three months since he got sick, his voice is still raspy. That's kind of par for course for having the, you know, any extended time on the ventilators. His mom is a nurse. My name is um, Tamara Chancellor, and I live here in Oswego as well. She has a really practical, clinical way of explaining what her son went through. And here's his wife. Uh, my name is Jalon Evans Garmalker. She and Anil own several semis and run a trucking business. She was home when he got really sick, driving back from deliveries in Indiana. It was taking him a long time to get home, which is 
unnatural for him. <laughs> I mean, I was stopping, but I wasn't getting out of the truck. He has uh, bunk beds in the back, so he is able to park and kind of lay down and, and rest. And when he got home, he was in terrible shape. The next day, he was still, he was even more miserable. I knew his mom was going to be coming home that day, and thank goodness she came over to check on him. I got in about 10 o'clock at night, and then came right over. She checked my uh, oxygen with a pulse ox, uh, whatever, the finger thing. It's a thing that you put on people's fingers, and it tells you what the pulse is and what your oxygen is. Um, anyway, his oxygen level was like between 87 and 88 percent. And most people, you'll be between 95 and 100 percent. So they, she had um, took me to the ER. The ER is uh, it's about 20 miles away in Parsons at Labette Health. And they did the COVID test. They tried to send me home with, you know, whatever they could to make me more comfortable. And I um, didn't agree to that. They figured I was positive and I didn't want to be back home around anyone. I've got nine kids total. And then in the house, um, full time with us, we have uh, two, a 13 year old daughter and a 10 year old, and then my wife. And I knew the test was going to be expedited, so we were going to know within 24 hours if it was a positive or not. And then once we finally got the, the final test result, it was just, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if you're sick. You don't know if the kids are sick. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen to him. And the next morning, they put us all on quarantine. And I was concerned because I have asthma. I'm over 60. I had driven him to the hospital, and I didn't even think twice about it. I drove him to the hospital without a mask. <laughs> it won't happen again. <laughs> they moved me within a day or two to the ICU because they needed to be able to observe me better. And I said, and who's his ICU nurse going to be? Well, it's Peggy. And I said, oh, Peggy's the best. And the next morning, Peggy called me and said, Tamara, we're going to have to intubate him. Normally, people breathe somewhere between 16 to 24 breaths in and out per minute. His was almost double that. And she said, he's just not getting enough oxygen, and we need to get him to KU Medical Center. Um, she said, call him now. You've got an hour. And um, it, it was very difficult. And so I called him. The best that he could do was, I love you, Mom. That was it. I was just fighting for really violent, you know, shallow breaths. They gave me an hour while they were getting things ready for me to get, you know, make any calls or do anything I wanted to do. So I, uh, I thought those were going to be um, possibly some of the last calls I made. I talked to my wife. I, I gave her instructions on how to run the business while I was gone, and was trying to make sure she had access to everything. It was just, you know, here's the password to my email so you can get into my email for the business. Take care of the guys. You know, this is what you need to do, and if you want to... I love you, or, you know, everything's going to be okay. But it's like telling me all of that was his way of saying I love you and making sure that we were okay. I think I spent a good 15 minutes just praying and settling things, and 
I had some friends call me, and they were um, they were into a lot of the conspiracy stuff, so they were you know discouraging me from the ventilator and the next steps, and it was probably not a good thing to hear from them at the time. I, I was really scared at that point that you know I had infected my mother and my wife and the kids that were here. And I even asked the doctor. I said, "Are we able to come by?" and, you know, see him go. I, I couldn't even see him before he went on the helicopter. Everything was ready. He was going straight to the COVID ICU unit at KU Medical Center. And uh, I think it was one o'clock, he hit Kansas City at 1.30. So they got there in about 30 minutes. And so the first call that we got was from a palliative care doctor Palliative care isn't always about end of life, but the perception is, is that's what it is. And the questions that they were asking was, when do you think Neil would want to stop treatment, basically? And my heart stopped. It was a day-by-day type of thing. So every morning we would get a call from a doctor or nurse, and every evening we would get a um, Zoom call with Anil. I think the first call was the hardest. I mean, I knew I knew what was happening. I knew he had tubes. I I knew. But actually seeing it is completely different. When people are on ventilators or in a in a medically induced coma, they have found that they do better with human contact. And you just kind of tell them, you know, we love you and We're all doing fine. We're not sick. We're not showing any symptoms. Later, I asked him if he remembered the calls, and he said, no, not so much. I mean, I think I have some, like, flashbacks or memories on the ventilator when they would, you know, wake me up to uh, wiggle my toes or they'd give me a simple instruction, and then they'd knock me back out. The Zoom calls were really not just for Neil, but they were for us, too because we connected and we were able to say what we needed to say just in case. I was mentally and physically exhausted. I gained about 10 pounds. I will admit I was stress eating to the max. I don't know how many times I mopped a day. I was just trying to stay busy, trying to take care of the house, trying to take care of the business, you know, make sure the girls were okay. Um, people would drive by, drop stuff on our porch, snacks and games and stuff for the girls. So I have a little notebook that we kept track of everything, his labs and his medications and what they did. And so the medication that they gave him was something called Losartan. And by the third day, they were talking about taking him off the ventilator. Correlation doesn't always equal causation, but it appeared to work for him. That was a clinical trial. And then I start to remember real broken memories of when they actually brought me out. Some of it makes sense and some of it is weird. I I think there was a day I thought there was a McDonald's behind the closet door. You know, there were days I thought I was kidnapped and in a foreign country because I woke up um, restrained. And my understanding is I pulled out and I pulled out feeding tubes out of my neck. I was trying to figure out first three days in the ICU, you know, how to get out. They would ask me if I, you know, remembered COVID or remembered whatever, and and I thought they were kind of making everything up to make money or, you know, there was something, you know, I just didn't trust anyone. There were two moments that were really happy 
that I remember as like exhilarating. One was when I got my phone and saw messages from my family. And probably above that was when I got water for the first time. I just remember being dry all the time. Ice water was great for days. They drove um, to Kansas City to pick me up. Uh, my wife, my mom, and I think the girls came. That was the first day I was officially off of quarantine. So that was a great day anyway. <laughs> we could go pick him up from the hospital and he got to go to Freddy's. It's like we could go on the open road and get out of town. It was great. <laughs> so a few months later, Anil is still recovering. He doesn't have COVID-19 anymore, but his throat, it swelled up a few times to the point where he struggled to get any air, and that landed him back in the ER two more times. He says life is different now in his small town. Some people think he's contagious. People have treated, you know, not just me, but my family differently. With, with the voice too, you know, and I'll just notice they'll take a step back. Then there's the people who think the world is making a fuss over a regular old flu. That makes me nuts because I've never flown anywhere on a helicopter with the flu. You know, I've never been out of work for three months because I got a cold or the flu. You know, I've never been scared that I killed my family over it. I never thought I was that close to death because of it. You know, it's not the same thing. We're learning more about the coronavirus every day, but there's still so much we don't know. Why do some people get sicker than others? What turns some into super spreaders of the virus? And why do some people who seem to initially recover quickly develop more severe symptoms later on? When you get down to it, we don't even know what we don't know. What we do know, though, is that this pandemic is affecting us all. The most recent crop of high school graduates, for instance, it ruined their celebration of one of life's most meaningful milestones and it's continuing to disrupt their lives as they head off to college or that first real job. The story of one young woman dealing with all of that and uncertainty about what lies ahead for her as a college athlete. That's next time on My Fellow Kansans. If you have an experience you'd like to share about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected your life, we'd like to hear it. Record a voice memo on your phone and send it to kansasnewsservice at kcur.org. Tell us who you are, where you are, and what life has been like over the past few months. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. Celia Yopis Jepson reported, wrote, and produced this episode with help from host Jim McLean. Erica Hunsinger edited the podcast. Grace Lotz, Brianna O'Higgins, and Beth Golay helped with promotions. Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Primary Color Music produced our theme song, and all other music you heard is from Free Music Archive. For more stories from the Kansas News Service, go to ksnewsservice.org. And to support more work like this, 
please donate to your local public radio station. See you next week.